Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the topic of facing old age. My guest, Dr. Connie Swig, is a retired psychotherapist and author and editor of many books, including The Holy Longing, The Hidden Power of Spiritual Yearning, A Moth to the Flame, The Life of the Sufi Poet Rumi, she wrote with Steve Wolf the classic book, Romancing the Shadow, a guide to soul work for a vital, authentic life, and edited with Jeremiah Abrams, the anthology, Meeting the Shadow, the Hidden Power of the Dark Side of Human Nature. She also edited the anthology, To Be a Woman, the Birth of the Conscious Feminine. Her most recent book is The Inner Work of Age, Shifting from Role to Soul. Connie is based in Southern California, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Connie. It's a real pleasure to be with you today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. You and I are both in an interesting position. Uh, I'm in my mid-70s. I think you're a few years younger than I am. Uh, so we can talk about aging both in terms of our personal experience as well as the scholarly literature that's available about it. And I suppose in particular, the depth of uh, your own work as a psychotherapist dealing with uh, people who are facing old age. Yes, we can talk about it on many levels. And that's great because it's not hypothetical then. I get the sense that uh, looking at, you know, the positive, the negative sides of life, you see a lot of value in things that other people might judge negatively and sometimes a lot of problems and things that people might judge positively. And I, I get the impression that for you, a very important part of soul growth is reconciling these opposites. You know, you're the first person to comment on that. It's a beautiful insight, and it's very aligned with the yin-yang pin that you're wearing. Um, so there are a few different ways for me to respond to this. One is um, the history of the aging movement and the study of age historically focused on decline and all the negative losses and deficiencies that happen. The positive aging movement came along to compensate for that and was very much focused on success in late life, productivity, athletic prowess, creative output. And when I looked at that, I said to myself, neither one is the whole truth about aging. The whole truth is that there's great beauty and great difficulty. And the challenges and the possibilities are all inside of us and all ahead for us. But if we don't learn how to maintain an awareness that holds the tension of opposites, as Carl Jung called it, then we're always splitting off one side or the other we're always either too negative or too positive given the whole enchilada. The other thing is, you know, my practice for 30 years now of shadow work. And it has trained me to kind of look at the downside or the dark side or the difficult side of things and hold it in a larger context. And what I learned early on about the shadow is that Things are only negative in relation to the ego. So if weakness or slowness or dependency, which are qualities of aging, are negative to the, to the ego, 
then they're going to go into the shadow. And as they start to come out in later life, we're going to have trouble accepting them. They're not inherently negative. They're not inherently bad. And so the shadow kind of has a bad rep, you know, it has a, in the, in the popular vernacular, it has this superficial interpretation that it's only contains bad stuff. That was in the beginning of the field of psychoanalysis, that was how Freud saw it. But Jung came along and he said, no, absolutely anything can be repressed into the unconscious. So if your parents disapprove of your artistic ability or um, devalue your athletic gifts, that's going to get buried in the shadow. And so part of my relationship to opposites is psychological, psychodynamic, and then further, it's also spiritual because you know, the aim of meditation practice is non-duality, not two-ness, holding the opposites and experiencing the unity of all the opposites. So as a meditator of more than 50 years now, that's kind of also built into my, my worldview and my aspirations. One of the you know, points that you make is that you like to balance meditating with facing the the dark issues, and let's let's face it: when it comes to facing uh, aging, is is one of the the things that most people are terrified of. People always ask me what meditation has to do with shadow work, or in this case, meeting the shadows of age. And for me, they've always been intricately connected because it's not so much balance it's more that when we pre when we have a sitting practice whether it's mindfulness or tm or prayer or centering prayer or whatever it is if we can silence our mind then we have a refuge no matter what is going on and it's like a life raft so as the hits of aging keep coming, if we know that we can sit and be calm and, and find silence, there's an incredible um, gift in that. And it's not that we don't suffer the declines of age because we all will. It's more that it changes our relationship to it. So the more I cultivate that inner silence over a long time now, the more I can observe my mind and the stories that I'm telling about what's happening. The more I can change my relationship to those stories and not identify with them. Remember, that's not who I am. If something happens, um, if I forget something, I know people say they have senior moments and they put themselves down and they feel self-hate. If I can say to myself, gee, that slip of memory is not who I am, and really know that deeply, then meditation has achieved its goal because I won't fall into all these small identities, these limited stories, these roles, and uh, get lost in them. So that's the connection for me. And when we have that inner silence, we can more easily identify when a shadow character arises in the mind. So if I say to myself, I don't want to be like those old people, I can recognize in that moment my denial. Right? I can recognize that I'm separating myself from other people in my age group. I can recognize all the implications of that, whereas if I'm just asleep to what my mind is doing, I'm not going to be awake to those internal voices of the shadow. A lot of people think, people my age and older, think that that's a healthy attitude to say, I don't want to be with those old people. I'm young. I'm vital. I'm full of energy. I'm not like them. Uh, 
you know, so many of my friends take that attitude, and and I admire them for it in a, in a certain way that they are living vital lives. But there is an awful lot of judgment behind that attitude. That's right. There's ageism behind it, because they're projecting onto others what they're not looking at in themselves, right? And that tells me that there's internalized ageism. We live in this very ageist culture that worships youth and has a lot of, um, you know, pejorative attitudes about old age. And that's been institutionalized. We saw this in the pandemic really clearly with the attitudes toward nursing homes, with the deaths of people in their 80s and 90s that were devalued. And so this ageism is internalized by all of us. It's hard to avoid. It's a lot like racism. You know, it can't be legislated away. It's an unconscious attitude that we take in from the collective and that we have to work on in ourselves to become conscious of it and change our behavior and our beliefs. So it's, it's wonderful that there's so much vitality now among people in late life, 60s, 70s, even 80s. There's great um, physical well-being and mental well-being, creative productivity for a lot of people, a lot of volunteering. And at the same time, to say, I'm not old, I'm not like those people, has a kind of denial in it and a projection in it. One of the things you point out is that in our culture, particularly where we are today in the United States, but I think this is probably true in, in most of the world, it's unacceptable socially in most circumstances to be racist, to be sexist, uh, to carry uh, other sorts of uh, stereotypes and prejudices. But pretty much ageism is still socially acceptable, even in situations where there's legislation against it. That's really true, Jeff. Even in media portrayals, even in the movies and television, there's always subtle put downs and comments about, you know, older people. So I had this experience when I first started writing the book um, of going into a local restaurant and ordering a meal. I was by myself and this very old woman sat next to me and she was dirty and she looked very poor and her clothes were tattered. And I I said to myself, what is she doing here? She's old and she's poor and she doesn't belong here. She's probably homeless, you know. And I stopped for a moment and recognized, because of my years of shadow work, recognized my inner voice was saying something really ageist. And this led me on a whole journey around the shadow characters of age what I call these internal figures that arise uh, around this transition. And so my inner ageist was shocking to me for just the reasons you're saying, which is that, you know, I've spent my life working on ageism, I mean, sorry, on racism and sexism and homophobia and all these political causes. And here I was in my late 60s, saying something to myself that was clearly ageist. It was also classist, but that's not my focus here. So it was prejudice. And um, it led me on a whole journey to discover the root of that inner ageist in myself, in my family history, where it came from, in the culture where it came from, and how to work on ageism socially, uh, collectively, because clearly the way that we're doing it now isn't working. And so I'm actually teaming up with Ashton Applewhite, who is sort of the leader of the anti-ageist movement in activism, to add the dimension of inner work and working on the inner ageist 
So so we're doing ageism from the outside in, that's her work, and ageism from the inside out, which is my work. And I think that's the way that real profound social change can happen. All of the social justice causes that we're working on now um, require a dimension of inner work to really change institutions. Well, it seems to me it's hard to talk about the prejudice we have about aging if we don't also address our inner prejudices concerning death itself. Prejudices concerning death. I don't think I've heard those two words together. So one of the main inner obstacles or shadow characters in my language around aging consciously is denial of mortality. And um, I know this is an area of interest for you about consciousness and where does consciousness reside and where does consciousness go when we die. Um, My take on this is not so much about beliefs. It's more about, about this. Um, my conniness will die. It will not survive the death of my body. Something may survive, but not my individual conniness. So if I continue to strive to build that and cultivate that and allow my ego to sort of control um, my striving in later life, that I'm really not moving into what I call role to soul. I'm really not allowing my identity, my deeper identity to shift from the roles, the masks, the ego's agenda to my spiritual essence. Now, we could argue about what is our spiritual essence. We can say, you know, is it atoms? Is it... Um, stars? Is it um, the self? Is it spirit? Is it consciousness? I don't really care what language we use. I think, you know, for materialists, there's one level of um, how Connie will be recycled into the environment, right? And for other folks, there are different ways in which we join, we go home, we join something larger when we die. But the bigger point for me is that we have a task to face in our 70s and 80s while we still can. And it's the task that's taught by every spiritual tradition. All the perennial traditions teach practices about facing death. Some of them teach, you know, um, go to the cemetery and meditate or sit with a skull, an empty skull, and meditate on it, but face the reality, this too shall pass, this shall pass, this is impermanent, and whatever the beliefs are about that isn't so important to me. My book is not so much about beliefs. In fact, I would say that some of the work of becoming an elder and shifting from role to soul is recognizing that we are not our beliefs. Our beliefs are contents of consciousness. They're all concepts. And we believe, you know, if we stay in the position that our beliefs are more right and their beliefs are more wrong, we're in the mind. And the mind is not our spiritual nature. The mind is not whatever we call it, soul or consciousness or spirit, right? So I'm not writing about beliefs. I'm writing more about how to get free, how to drop our identification from all the limited identities that we've been living until now. 
You tell a wonderful story in your book. Uh, actually, you draw upon Ernest Hemingway's great novel, uh, which was also a movie, as I recall, The Old Man and the Sea, as an example of someone who wasn't able to let go of his his identity as a fisherman. And I think that's probably true for, for many of us, especially as we first enter old age. We are identified with our careers, our professions. That's right. And who is he if he's not a fisherman? And so that who am I question comes up again like it did at midlife. Who am I if I'm not the shadow expert? If I retire from clinical practice, if I stop writing books, who am I? And that can be translated for anyone. Who am I if I'm not the CEO or the mom? or the lawyer, or the teacher, who am I? And so the fisherman, that story, I have no idea if that was what he was writing about, but what it says to me as the fisherman goes further and further out to sea and his hands are bloodied and the fish eludes him, and he, keep, and he gives up all of his knives to throw at the fish, and he can't catch it, and eventually he catches it. I think it's after eight days. He pulls it to the side of the boat, and the sharks eat it until it's a carcass, and he comes home empty-handed. And to, for me, that was a metaphor for the workplace, because for so many people, the workplace is like a battlefield. And it gives this sense of purpose and it gives teams and family and it gives structure to the day. But what happens when all that's over? Who am I? And that's why spiritual practice is so crucial to continue to return to that silence, that transcendental state, to continue to remember who we really are when we stop being the fishermen and let go of the roles. Well, I think for a lot of people, and I'm, I'm thinking now of my own father, who uh, uh, was a, a, an entrepreneur, a small business entrepreneur all of his life, never really engaged in spiritual practice uh, of, of any sort, as a matter of fact. Uh, he gave up uh, his orthodox religious uh, training as soon as he could once he was in college and, and he got raised a family and was a businessman, a workaholic pretty much his whole life. And I suspect there are many people out there just like that. Uh, is it possible, do you think, for somebody late in life to begin a spiritual practice? You've been meditating for 50 years, but what about for somebody who doesn't have that background? That's a really good question. So, you know, I found in my therapy practice over many decades that for most people, there was this whisper inside, this restless longing. In fact, I wrote a book called The Holy Longing. This restless kind of wondering and wandering. And for, and for many people, it gets covered over and shut down in the business of life because they have to survive, they have to provide, they have to build and create family and home and career and all the usual stuff. And so that little whisper gets silenced. For some people, when the building stage of life is over and there's time to slow down, they might tune in. They might find a way to, you know, some people might call it intuition. Um, some people might call it the soul speaking. And so those folks may find um, that that starts coming up for them. They don't know what to do with it. 
because it's unfamiliar and they've never followed it before as a guide. Um, and so, you know, for those people, they, those kind of folks I would call sort of um, probably um, conventional, rational folks, they would probably end up going to their local church or synagogue, right? And getting involved in organized religion which isn't going to have mystical practices for them. But it may have community, and it may have a worldview that's meaningful. Um, for people in the baby boom generation who did spiritual practices early in life and then dropped them to raise families and run businesses, there's a return that's happening when I interviewed one of the founders of Spirit Rock Meditation Center in California, she, this was before the pandemic, she said baby boomers were just coming in droves to learn mindfulness. There's a return happening for some, I would say millions of people um, having left their practices behind and now knowing really intuitively that that's the purpose of late life. So everybody has a different relationship to this. There, there are many, many older people practicing Hatha Yoga now. You know, it's just called yoga, but it used to be called Hatha Yoga, uh, to stay flexible and limber. Um, there are people practicing martial arts to focus attention. There are people um, finding mystical practices within their uh, childhood traditions like Judaism and Christianity and Islam. There are lots of mystical streams in those traditions that do have practices. So there are all kinds of ways to respond to that restless yearning and follow it. And I would say for some people, it leads to creative expression, you know, which has its own relationship to spirituality, but it's not the same thing. I mean, my... My literary agent recently retired from a life as a businesswoman, and she's painting full time. And she said to me, I've never been happier. I didn't even know I was an artist. So there are different ways we respond to this call. It's, it's interesting, that phrase, I've never been happier. I can attest at uh, the age of 74, I've never been happier. I, I love uh, this age and I love this life. But I know for many people, they're confronting illness. And because of uh, problems with the body, pain, arthritis, for example, they've never been more miserable. Yes, it's true. So I like to say age is our curriculum. And I have a whole chapter on illness as practice so that we can learn to change our relationship to our body and its symptoms and what it's trying to tell us, both psychologically and spiritually. And we can, um, and I don't want to minimize the suffering here. That's, that's not what I'm saying because it can be, you know, very challenging. My husband has a very serious disease. So it can be very challenging for, for everybody. And at the same time, there, is, there are ways to use practices um, to turn illness into opportunity. You know, remember Ram Dass used to use the term uh, grist for the mill. So illness can become our, the material with which we practice. I'll give you an example. Um, I had a really, really close friend who had uh, cancer. She died last year. And I spent two years as her caregiver. And um, we both, we had had a very conscious friendship over the decades where we could process just about any emotional material with each other. It was very open and transparent um, and fun and sweet, you know. And, and we had our issues, but we always got through them. So 
when she got sick, I began to notice her early childhood issues coming up. She really struggled with certain um, dynamics that were painful for her. And eventually, as I was kind of giving more and more, and she was not really acknowledging me or thanking me or expressing appreciation, we got into this kind of stuck dynamic where she was the needy one and I was the fixer, the rescuer. And eventually we started talking about it and recognizing that we were both repeating early family patterns with each other. And we were both long-term meditators. And so we could kind of witness or observe what we were doing together. And eventually we got into this state in which the roles fell away the sick person and the caregiver, it just fell away. And we saw each other as souls, both souls on a journey. And the fact that the giving and receiving was imbalanced became irrelevant. And the fact that the communication was insufficient became irrelevant. And we saw into each other in the most profound way that was very um, gratifying for both of us. So caregiving and illness is, um, can be really painful and challenging, and it also has opportunity in it. And so, you know, for people, and this is in response to your earlier question as well, for people who are aware that they are developing, that they are evolving, for people who want to expand their emotional and spiritual development in this stage of life, along with their expanded longevity, all of these moments become opportunities to do that when you have the tools and the practices. A couple of times now, Connie, uh, during the interview, interview, you've used the phrase uh, that I didn't quite understand, and maybe you can amplify it. I think the phrase was shadow characters. Yes, I haven't defined that yet. So Carl Jung, in the early days of psychology, coined the term personal shadow to refer to that part of us that contains the material that we bury or um, repress in early life. And as I mentioned, it can be seen as negative or positive, but it can be absolutely anything. It can be feelings, it can be behaviors, gifts, talents, anything that's not lived out goes into the shadow. And there, and the way that he worked with it initially was through dreams because in the dream, the unconscious is speaking to us. And so we can find dream figures that we can dialogue with. And then he came up with active imagination, which is a kind of a creativity practice for working with unconscious material. When I wrote Romancing the Shadow with my friend Steve Wolf, we came up with a method that we called shadow work which is about personifying um, a figure in the unconscious in this way. Say, for example, um, you start to notice that you're always repeating the same thing to yourself. The same internal dialogue goes over and over again. Let's say when, um, when someone doesn't recognize you or acknowledge you. You might say to yourself, well, I'm invisible to her. I'm unimportant to her. And, and that, that dialogue is always the same whenever you're triggered in that way. The same feelings go with that inner dialogue and the same physical sensations go with it as well. So what if we were to take those three cues 
thoughts, feelings, and sensations and personify them as an internal figure and then give it a name and give it an image, the invisible one. Okay? So now I have um, something that was previously unconscious in my awareness that I can build a relationship with. So now when the invisible one arises, I can have a dialogue with it. I can observe it. I can choose not to act it out. I can choose not to rage because I feel invisible or not to blame. Or I can choose to um, say to somebody, I feel invisible. I'd like to speak louder now. And so when we have a relationship to that figure, which we call a shadow character, Steve and I in the book, um, then we're making the unconscious conscious. And what, with the new book, The Inner Work of Age, I'm extending that work into late life. So when we have these experiences of, um, that we're talking about that are challenging about aging, we can recognize our shadow characters and we can have a different experience by changing our behavior. You know, I, I read some research that just really blew my mind when I started writing this book. There's a psychologist at Yale named Becca Levy who has spent decades, do you know her work? Uh, no, I'm not familiar with it personally, but other than having read about it in your book. Yeah, she spent decades researching what she calls embodied stereotypes their unconscious images and beliefs about old age that we carry with us through the lifespan. And of course, I recognized instantly she was talking about the shadow. But she couldn't use that language, you know, or she'd never get published by Yale University. So she found that when we have negative unconscious images and beliefs about old age, there are impacts on our physical health, our mental health, our memory, our longevity, our will to live, our retirement, thousands of people, and these results showed up. So for me, you know, if we can uncover what she calls embodied stereotypes or what I call shadow characters, um, we can change how we live our late life. We cannot be so much at the effect of our unconscious as we enter this new period. If I recall correctly, this is the research where she would project certain words subliminally on, on a screen so that people didn't even know that they were seeing the word, and then she would have them perform various tasks. And when the words were associated with aging, for example, uh, people perform poorly. When the words were associated with youth, people perform better in, in the task, uh, which shows how emotionally laden these words are at a subconscious level. That's right. Words like senile or memory loss or, you know, stereotypical words. Yes, they, they, people had, their responses were declined. And it was below the threshold of awareness. So this was not intentional response. And that's, that's what my work is about. It's really about how do we bring that material up into the light of awareness and respond to it differently. So it's not controlling us. The research also suggested how much we must be at the mercy of subliminal messages that are coming at us all day long from a billboard that we might drive by and not even notice it, or a brief comment on, on the radio, or some offhand remark a stranger makes as we're walking past them. All of these things are impacting us. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, you know, if we think about that in the context of age, 
Um, do you remember All in the Family on television? Archie Bunker. You remember how he treated Edith? Edith always seemed a little bit uh, flapsy-hapsy, I guess is a word I would use yes, to describe her. he treated her. her with contempt. He was patronizing and insulting, and he treated her with contempt, and that's what I grew up watching. Nobody was thinking about how it was affecting us as kids. You know, and that's not even subliminal, but it's internalized it's it's internalizing the images and the conversations or my my father would um, roll his eyes at my grandmother. He didn't even have to say anything and I knew how he was responding. So these things, it's like we're swimming in this soup all the time, right? And it's subliminal and it's conscious or unconscious, but it's shaping who we become. So it actually matters what we put our attention on. One of the things you point out uh, with regard to ageism is, is that certain categories of people are affected by it much more than others. If, if you're a person of color, if you're a female, if you're gay, uh, growing older is, is going to be uh, more, well, I don't want to say it's going to be more difficult, but I, what I do want to say is that the, the thrust of ageism directed at you will be stronger. Well, some people carry more than one stigma. Right. So in the gay community, they're they're dealing with homophobia and ageism. Or in the disabled community, same thing. So and there are now studies about the impact in the black community because of racism and ageism, studies of older people in the black community and how the double stigma is affecting their health. Yeah, so it's challenging. It's really challenging. I know, for example, um, because I'm married, it does seem to affect women more than men. And uh, in the Jewish tradition, uh, almost all Jewish people know the word bubamisa, which is, is a word for, that means generally nonsense, sometimes even as strong as bullshit. But what it refers to in Yiddish is the sorts of things that grandma is going to say. Yeah, it has an inherent put down in it, doesn't it? It has an inherent, it doesn't take her seriously. Yeah. And we get these subtle messages while we're growing up, you know, and nobody's watching for that. There was not, that was not, I mean, I think that can be in our awareness now as grandparents, but it was not then in, in when we were little. Yeah. Well, the subtitle of your book, From Role to Soul, is very interesting. And, and the concept of soul, to me, comes out in your discussion of what you call an elder, that there is a role for people, a completely new role, the role of the elder, uh, which manifests itself in many different ways in, in many different contexts. But it, it seems that uh, regardless of one's health, regardless of gender or uh, sexual preference or uh, religion or race, that, that there is a role for elders in almost every community. As you say role, I feel some resistance, <laughs> right? Because I'm talking about the shift out of roles. And for me, the real elder isn't putting on another set of clothes and stepping into a new role. There are some people who are doing that. You know, they might um, mentor. They might engage in activism. They might engage with a charity. Um, what I mean is more a stage, not an age. So it's an internal state of mind that has to be cultivated intentionally. We all become seniors with a Medicare birthday, but we don't all become elders. And so what does that really mean to be an elder? 
And the whole kind of cliche of wise elder, we think we know what it means, but do we? Do we really know what that means, wise elder? So um, I went into a year-long training to become a sage or an elder with a community called Saging International. And it was a beautiful training. I really, really liked it. And it didn't address unconscious process or the shadow issues. So for me, there was something missing. But I did feel differently afterwards. I did feel as if I woke up to, well, let me give you a few examples. As part of the training, we did a life review. And I'm not the kind of person who focuses on the past. I'm not particularly nostalgic or interested in my history that much. Um, so I didn't know if I was going to like this. But when I did this practice of the life review and really looked at the key people and events and insights and things that happened in my life, several things happened. One was I saw that many of the difficult events, many of the traumas and abuses that I suffered had outcomes that were positive because they led me in unknown directions. In other words, if this hadn't have happened, I wouldn't have gone that way. If this hadn't have happened, I wouldn't have gotten in therapy, and then I wouldn't have become a therapist. And if that hadn't have happened, I wouldn't have started meditating. And if that hadn't, right? So I began to see the flow of my life as something that was not random, that had pattern and meaning to it. And that was very gratifying. And then I saw that my four different careers, which had looked so distinct, actually all had one purpose, or dharma, or tao, whatever we call it. For me, that purpose was transmitting information about consciousness. And I hadn't seen that thread in the tapestry before I did the life review. So some of the work of becoming an elder is harvesting the wisdom of our lives, harvesting the lessons and digesting the lessons, and then eventually sharing them, hopefully, in some way. There's so many people now who are... Um, writing memoirs, um, doing video memoirs, you know, finding ways to share what they've learned from their lives with their families and with the larger community. There are a lot of people in my generation doing mentoring now with younger people through ARP and through all these other eldering organizations. So, I mean, mentoring organizations. So for me, that's one quality of becoming an elder. We could say there are activist elders who are more extroverted and really want to be engaged in social causes. Elders Action Network is a fabulous organization that works on climate and racism and all sorts of social issues. Um, there are um, earth elders who are really focused on climate and environmental issues now, um, you know, and some of these folks have the connection to the inner world and some of them don't, you know, and then there are people who are more introverted, who want to really focus on spiritual practice now and become spiritual elders in some way and teach meditation or teach contemplative practices in businesses or in government or in military all these or different parts of society. Um, and then, you know, there are elders who have really focused on spiritual practice and attained higher levels of consciousness. And um, they transmit something else, you know, they transmit their, their radiance, 
their level of being. And some of them are still involved in the world of doing, and some of them are not. They're, they're more focused on um, evolution of consciousness. You know, that's the priority to those folks. So I think elder is, um, is complicated in the sense that developmentally, there can be different stages of being an elder. But someone who is 85 years old and is rigid and resentful and regretful, I wouldn't call an elder just because he or she is 85 years old. But someone who might be 55 and is self-aware and open-hearted and in service to something greater, I might call that person an elder. So the shift from real to soul is kind of, it's not equal. It's not, it's not the same. I talk about the shift from hero to elder, midlife hero to elder, and the shift from role to soul, which is really the move to a spiritual identity. It seems that letting go of resentments is an important part of that process. Resentment and regret. So I have a whole chapter on emotional repair because, you know, Everyone I interviewed, the greatest fear was dying with regret. And if we really want to clear that and avoid that, there might be some work that needs to be done, even now. Giving and receiving forgiveness, you know, making amends with people letting go of old resentments because we no longer need to identify with that old story of who we were. You know, I'm a victim of childhood trauma, you know, or I'm a victim of my husband's cheating or whatever it is. So part of the work is practicing letting go of these limited identities that carry the resentment and the regret Maybe we harmed someone else, and there's guilt, and there's shame. So it's important, I think, for people who don't want to go into the end of life carrying those difficult feelings. It's important to kind of address that now. One of the other issues that seems quite central to your work is the, the question of helplessness. As, as people grow older and, and weaker, for example, one of my intellectual heroes, a man I love very deeply, Houston Smith, a great religious scholar, I know before his death, maybe for a year or two, he, he was so weak he couldn't get out of bed. He had to be cared for constantly. And uh, for people who are self-reliant and, and we live in a culture that emphasizes self-reliance, that, that kind of helplessness is especially disconcerting and embarrassing. Yeah, this is one of the biggest shadows of age. It's one of the biggest dreads that we have is the helplessness because, you know, we're raised with this heroic, self-sufficient, independent, image of a human, a fully individuated human who barely needs anybody else, right? I can do it all myself. And so as we slow down and need more help, it's really important that we can make this internal shift into what is, into accepting what is. And I think that Ramdas has been an extraordinary teacher about that um, after he had a stroke and had several books about it, continued to teach and talk about it, became more and more helpless. And, you know, in his words, um, used it all as grist for the mill and really was able to deepen his consciousness and expand his consciousness into a spiritual identity, which he very honestly said he hadn't been able to do before because he was so caught up in being the spiritual teacher. You know, who am I if I'm not Ramdas, you know, and I'm just this 
helpless body in the wheelchair and the wheelchair would be loaded into the swimming pool and then somebody would have to groom him and bathe him and somebody would have to and then he said he couldn't drive anymore and he could either say well I'm such a victim I can't drive or he could say wow I'm being chauffeured and he really modeled for a lot of us I think a different entry into that experience of helplessness and dependency an illness. I don't, I don't know what Houston Smith's experience was. I didn't follow it that closely. I, I loved his work. But, but Ramdas was so public about it. He was so transparent about it, and that was a great gift. Yes, I uh, had the pleasure, in fact, of interviewing him after he had the stroke. So, uh, uh, at least at that point, he, he was still getting around rather well and, and was certainly quite articulate. Uh, there, are, there are things that can be quite embarrassing. I know I had uh, a very beloved aunt of mine, and as she grew older, she couldn't wipe her own butt. Every time she went to the bathroom, she needed to somebody to come and clean her. Yeah. The bodily functions carry a lot of shame, you know, sometimes throughout the lifespan. And so um, the shift from how can I help someone to how can they help me is a big shift. And asking for help is hard for people who whose ego is identified with independence, then the dependency becomes really hard. Or whose ego is identified with productivity, then the lack of work becomes really hard. And this is why I'm suggesting that we kind of explore these things before they hit us, you know? Before we're sort of drowning in the water, we can build some life rafts and find these various ways to stay afloat. I, and I think it's also important for caregivers to understand that when they're dealing with a helpless person, they don't have to see them as only that. There's also a, a, another way of looking at that person as, as a, a sacred being. Yes. That's exactly right. I have a whole chapter on caregiving. It's so crucial now with this new longevity. And I don't and nobody is really teaching caregivers about that. How to really do it as a spiritual practice. It's precious. As I recall, it's one of the things that Ramdas used to talk about. Uh, yeah. a, a, a great deal uh, earlier uh, when he, he was involved in setting up, I think it was the SEVA Foundation yes, and, that's and right. sending caregivers all over the, the world not to look down on the people who need your help. Yeah. You know, I had a, a close friend die last year who really modeled for all of us um, An incredible, he just, he, he was in his 80s, and he had a long time to prepare. Um, he never complained. He never fell into the victim. Um, he was a spiritual practitioner. And um, the last time I spoke to him, he was on hospice, and he said, my mantra is allow. So he was just allowing the process to happen. He wasn't fighting against it. He wasn't resisting or struggling. He was just allowing. And there was something about that that was just so elegant. Well... Dr. Connie Swig, this has been a very elegant conversation. I, I know there's so much to talk about. Your book, The Inner Work of Age, is so very, very rich, packed with uh, all kinds of scientific studies, and uh, as well as personal experiences and interviews with, with many well-known spiritual 
figures who are confronting age themselves. I highly recommend it to our viewers. And I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being with me today. Thank you, Jeff. It was a privilege. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. Thank you.